0: Genesis chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then there should be one hopefully in the, the chair just in front of you. Uh, please do uh, have that with you. Um, it'd be really helpful uh, to have that to follow along with us uh, this morning. Uh, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, jumping back into uh, our mini-series in Joseph. Um, series title is Pain and Providence. Uh, and really, it's uh, in many ways, it's such a timely uh, uh, such a timely thing that we we'll would be uh, jumping back into the series at this point. Uh, many of you uh, will maybe have been uh, tracking through Genesis. You've maybe just read through it or about to read through it uh, if you start a new Bible plan in January. Uh, and I wonder if you've ever asked the question of Um, why so many of the the most significant things, so many of the most important things in Genesis, creation, the fall, the flood, they they get crammed into the the first 11 chapters. But yet from chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 50, there's this focus, we zoom in on this one family line, and particularly uh, last 14 chapters of the book are just focused on this one person and this one family. So maybe asking, maybe never asked before, why does God wanting us to to zoom in so much? What is it that he's trying to get us to see? What is it that he's really seeking to draw our attention to by focusing so much on the details of this one family and particularly on the details of the life of this one man, Joseph? God is wanting to show us that he is at work even in the, the smallest details, even in the hardest parts of life, even through the pain and the sin and the evil that we see as we track through this family line. And he's wanting to show us how he is still at work to bring about those promises that he made to Abraham in chapter twelve, and that he is fulfilling all the way through Genesis and through the rest of the Bible. God wants us to be humbled as we as we see that, as we zoom in and we see that. He wants us and he also wants us to find so much hope. As we see how the hand of God has been at work in this world, how is it at work in the life of Joseph? And how it is still at work in our lives, even though we might not always see it. God wants us to see here that in the details of life, in the pain of life, His hand is at work. That's why this sermon series is uh, titled Pain and Providence. God is fulfilling His promises to you and to me through pain and because of His providence. So this big word, providence, uh, what does it mean? Well, it means that everything that happens to us, all the things that would come to us come from the hand of God. God uses those things to, to form us And ultimately, providence means that God is always for us. So for followers of Jesus, his providence means that he always providence, he is always pro us, he is always for us. That whatever his hand brings upon us, he uses to form us, and that he is always for us. How does that help? How is this meant to help? How is zooming in in the life of Joseph and in the life of his family meant to help to see the hand of God? of God. Well, we looked at this last time from an old catechism. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. That's what we've just been singing about, isn't it? All creatures so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. Patient when things go against us. Thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. This is the same fatherly and mighty hand we thought about last week in First Peter that God calls us to humble ourselves under. The reality is that it's often hardest to see how God's hand is at work when things get difficult find that in my life. I'm sure you find that in your life. It's often hardest to see how his hand is at work when things get difficult. It's often hardest to understand how hard things can come from God and how they can be used by God. I wonder if that's where you are this morning. You feel like you're in the pits, just like Joseph. There's no way out. How did this happen to me? Why do I still have to go through this? Is God still with me? what is the purpose in all that he is doing in my life? Maybe that is something that has just recently blindsided you or your family or maybe it's something that you've been finding hard for a long time that it just hasn't gone away. Well, this morning, you're not alone. In Genesis chapter 40, we find Joseph in the pits of life literally and it's not for the first time either. And he was surely wrestling with the same questions that you and me will have. So if that is you this morning, then God is speaking to you through the life of Joseph in order to remind you that his hand is upon you and that there is hope. Maybe you feel like you're in a good season of life, you know, things are going well. Then this chapter is speaking to you to help you see that just as good things are from his hand, so too are the hard things and we need to be prepared for them whenever they come and we need to be able to learn how to rejoice in those just as much as we rejoice in the good things, no matter how hard that can sometimes be. The offer that God has for those who don't know Jesus this morning is that he would take the hard things that happen in our lives and give them a purpose and a meaning. He would take what seem like painful and pointless things and turn them into purposeful experiences that would enable you to become a protector in the promises of God. He would take hard painful and seemingly pointless things and give them purpose and meaning and use them to form you so that you can become a partaker in the promises of God if you would just turn to him and trust in him. So what we're going to see here in Genesis 40 is that the providential hand of God is going to prove Joseph's faith to be true. He's going through something hard and God is using that in his life to form him and prove him true. He tests him in the pit, in prison, in order to prepare him to bring about God's promises later on in the story. God is going to lift him up and elevate him, but in order to do that, he needed to prepare him. And Psalm 105 gives us a real hint as to what God is doing in his life in the prison here. It's up on the screen for you. He sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron, talking about his experience in prison, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. That's why this sermon is called Proven in the Pit. God is proving him true. He is testing him and he is preparing him so that he can be used by God to fulfill his promises. God uses painful and unexpected circumstances to form us and prove us true and prepare us to become partakers in those future promises. The the promises that we get to experience now and in all their fullness in the future. So if you've hopefully had some time to go to Genesis 40. Uh, we're just going to read the whole chapter. So please do have it in front of you or share with someone beside you. Uh, and let's uh, read God's word together. Uh, starting in verse one, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. He asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell him to me. So the chief gut pair told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are also three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift your head up from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, so Joseph had interpreted them as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Uh, let's just pray together as we come to see what these things uh, mean to us. Uh, We, Father, we thank you that you are a God who we can build our lives on, that you are a God who is faithful, uh, who is good. Uh, But, Father, so often hard things happen in our lives, and we wonder um, how you are at work. We wonder how uh, we can still trust you. We wonder um, how these things are going to work out, what purpose they are for. And we ask, Father, that you would speak to us now through uh, your word that you would... To soften our hearts so you cause us to be receptive, not hard towards you. That you would help us by your Spirit to understand these things uh, and to apply them to our lives. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let's just dive in. God's work of proving me has a purpose, even when, firstly, the place I am in doesn't make sense to me. So Joseph had received these two dreams from God back in Genesis 37. Um, that one day his brothers would bow down to him. Um, but then he told them the dream. Then they plotted to kill him. They threw him in a pit, left him for dead, and then he was sold into slavery. He then ends up in Egypt in the house of the captain of Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. God was with Joseph there and blessed him, and and everything he did seemed to, to go well. Um, he was put in charge of Potiphar's household, but then Potiphar's wife made sexual advances on Joseph, and he resists and flees from her to then only be falsely accused and end up back in prison, which is where we find him here in Genesis chapter 40. So he's favored by his father, he's the favorite son. He's then beaten by his brothers, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt, he gets into Potiphar's house, things seem to go well. God's favor is on him, he's put in charge of the household. He remains faithful, he trusts God, he flees the temptation. From Potiphar's wife, but then he's falsely accused and he's put back in prison and he's back in the pit once again. His life doesn't exactly go in a straight line, does it? Just when things look up, everything in Joseph's life gets really hard again. And he's asking those questions Why am I here? How is this part of the plan that you told me about God? Why couldn't you just let me keep working for Potiphar and climbing the Egyptian political ladder so those dreams you gave me would become true already the easy way? Verse 1 tells us sometime after this, so time is passing by in this prison and things aren't happening sometime after this. Joseph is dejected, but he's still remaining faithful. He's still got some work to do there, but time is passing on and surely his hope is beginning to fade. Then one day we see two new prisoners arrive that we've just read about. They, they weren't just any ordinary prisoners. They were two of Pharaoh's most trusted servants. And note the details that they that our, our attention is being drawn to in the text. Twice we are told that these guys are servants of the king of Egypt. They're not just servants of anyone. Also, how, Also, the writer wants to make us clear to us in verse 3 that these guys just aren't put into any prison. They are put into the same prison as Joseph. And then in verse 4, we are told that Joseph doesn't just see them at mealtimes, okay, in the canteen. He doesn't just see them for that one hour of exercise in the exercise yard a day. Joseph is actually told to be with them, to attend to them, to serve them, and to care for them. So he's going to spend a lot of time with these guys. It's not coincidental, is it? It's providential. If we know the story of Joseph of at all, of, of all, we know the significance of who these two prisoners are. And I'm guessing Joseph was starting to catch on to something's happening here. These aren't just two any ordinary prisoners, these aren't two just criminals, these guys aren't just criminals off the street. These are two of Pharaoh's most trusted servants. Yet verse four says they continued for some time in custody. This ray of hope comes in in the form of these two prisoners. Maybe something's about to change, maybe something's about to, to happen. They're in the same prison in him. And surely Joseph hope Joseph's hopes are, are beginning to be on the up at last. But nothing changes. He had to wait. He has to remain patient. Even though the question of why he is there might be beginning to be answered in his mind, the question of when goes unanswered. God is testing Joseph's patience here. He is forming his character by calling on him to wait. And he's doing that because God is shifting Joseph's hope from a change of circumstances to the certainty of his promises. In asking him and calling him to wait, he is shifting Joseph's hope from a change in his circumstances in prison to the certainty of God's promises. Promises that were made to him back in chapter 37. Just as Joseph was working on his way up the Egyptian political ladder, God takes him on this painfully difficult detour to remind him that the dreams he gave him, the promises he made to him, will be accomplished, but not ultimately by Joseph's hard work, but by God's mighty hand. As each hour passes, as each day passes, as each week passes, as each month passes, each year passes, God is teaching him dependence. God is teaching him patience. God is teaching him to trust in his timetable. Um, I don't know how many of you actually get the bus around Glasgow. Uh, I get it sometimes. Uh, Try not to use it whenever I can, but it's pretty helpful sometimes. But last week, uh, I was trying to catch number 90 on the battlefield road, and you look at the timetable, and you plan, I need to be here by this time. You pick a time in the timetable, and you stand and wait for the bus. Um, You know where you're going, you know when you want to get there, but instead you just need to wait, because as we all know, buses have a timetable of their own. Uh, So the number 90 doesn't come, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 10, 20, 30, still hasn't come, and everyone else is standing there, everyone else's bus is coming, someone else comes, they only have to stand 3 minutes and their bus comes straight away. There's about 5 34s come by, but there's still no 90, but you just have to wait I want to get here now. I, wanted, I, had, I had this all planned. I was going to get here when I wanted to get there. But you just had to wait. But everyone else gets to go when they want to go. Everyone else is working just the way they want it to work. But I'm just going to have to wait. God doesn't, just, God doesn't give us a timetable. That's what we see here in Joseph's time in prison. He doesn't give us a timetable. Instead, he calls us to trust him. You see, God uses waiting in our lives to teach us to shift our hope from being built on a change in circumstances to being built on the certainty of his character and on the certainty of his promises. Because we know the reality is that a change in circumstances may not come anytime soon or it may not even come at all in this lifetime. That's not what God promises us. The family we long for, the the job we dreamed of, the pain we wish we were relieved of, the person we've been praying for, But a hope that is built on the character of God is a hope that takes heart in the certainty of the promises that come from God. Promises which are made possible because of Jesus. When God calls us to wait and to trust in his promise, he's ultimately calling us to wait on and trust in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of those promises. Promises made to Joseph were the beginnings of a plan that was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus In the midst of deep pain, Jesus longed for his circumstances to change when he prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But instead, he perfectly entrusted himself to God's character, praying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's waiting on the will of God. He's waiting on the will of God. And his waiting on the will of God means that our waiting is never wasted. And his presence with us now by his Spirit strengthen us when we are weak in the midst of that waiting. God uses the pits of life to purge us of the things that we would be tempted to put our hope in other than Jesus. That's what Paul's point is in Romans 5. If it's up on the screen in front of you, Romans 5, 2 to 4, you're probably familiar with this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is, we rejoice in the future hope, the future promises of being with God but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And it's not just any hope. It's not hope in a changing circumstances. It's an eternal future hope. It's true hope. It's real hope. The kind of hope that Romans 8 talks about. Future hope that enables us to wait. Romans 8, 25. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Hope for a change in circumstances isn't real hope because not only may our circumstances not change, but even if they do, we may well end up back in the pit just like Joseph. Just because one circumstance changes doesn't mean we'll be freed from other circumstances. And our true hope is a hope that is not seen. It is a future hope. It is a hope in the character of God, and it is a hope in the person of Jesus who fulfills the promises of God. That's what God was doing in Joseph's life. His time in prison was producing that endurance. He had to wait. He had to persevere. And that waiting wasn't wasted. It produced character in him. It produced true hope in him. A real hope that enabled him to remain patient. You don't see anywhere in this chapter Joseph losing real patience. Not really losing patience. And that is what he is going to do in our lives and in my life when we are following Jesus. When the place we are in doesn't make sense to us, when the timing of God is testing us, he calls us to wait for him so that we, he might remove all those other things we look to put our hope in. God was doing a work in Joseph that meant when he eventually got out of prison, the main point of his testimony wouldn't just be that God has freed me. It's that God remained faithful to me. So that his testimony wouldn't be just that I got out. But that God is good. That is what he was doing in Joseph's life. That is what he wants to do in our life too. God's work of proving me has a purpose. Even when the place I'm in doesn't make sense to me. And secondly, even when the promises of God seem like they failed me. So God calls us to wait on him and God is calling us to remain faithful to him. So as Joseph waits in prison, the dreams God had given him back in 37 must have seemed like a million miles away from the reality he finds himself in. He had been told his brothers would be bound down to him and now he is stuck serving criminals. And then verse 5, one night these two servants each have a dream It's important to note that in Joseph, in the story of Joseph, dreams come in pairs. Joseph had two dreams in chapter 7. Pharaoh, we'll see next time, has two dreams in chapter 41. And here in the middle, these two prisoners have a dream each. It's at pains. The writer's at pains to make that clear. They each have their own dream. And the doubling of dreams in chapter 41, we're told, means that they are from God and that what what has happened is fixed by God. So just as Joseph may be beginning to feel God's promises have failed him, God reminds him that what he promised to Joseph back in 37 um, will happen. And he does it by sending him another double dream his way. Note Joseph's immediate response down in verse 8. He states, Do not interpretations belong to God. Well, what's easy to miss here is just how incredible that response is to these two guys. Okay? It was Joseph's dreams that had caused him to be beaten up by his brothers, thrown in a pit, and sold into slavery, and that ultimately had led him to prison. It's these dreams which got him in trouble in the first place. So you can imagine that he would have been, his reaction maybe would have been, don't listen to your dreams, forget about them. Dreams are what put me in here. Dreams are useless. Don't listen to those dreams. But that's not what he says. Instead, Joseph shows incredible incredible faith by saying that the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. In this statement, he's not only demonstrating faith that God can interpret the two dreams, but that he also has faith in the promises that God made to him. When he believes that God can interpret these two dreams, he's saying, God gave me those dreams and I trust that they are from him and I trust that they will happen. Promises that at the moment seem to have landed him in prison and what he did to get put in prison for being faithful to the work of God in Potiphar's house, for fleeing from his wife, and then he's falsely accused and yet he still believes that God can interpret dreams, that the dreams are from God and God will fulfill them. In spite of all this, Joseph is still remaining faithful to God. God is testing his faithfulness. He is refining Joseph's faith and he is preparing him for all that God is about to use him for in the rest of Genesis. He is teaching Joseph also to keep working while he's waiting. Uh, When we were back home at Christmas, um, uh, we bumped into an older couple who Uh, from the church that I grew up in. Uh, One of the things I love about um, going back and visiting is being able to see uh, people who have been so influential in my life. Um, And when I was thinking about faithfulness in the midst of adversity, uh, this couple came to my mind. Uh, They're in many ways very ordinary people. Um, They're now retired. Uh, They have normal jobs. Uh, He was a teacher. Uh, She taught music. They lived in a normal town. They raised their family. And they were faithful to the church and they still are so faithful. He served as an elder for many years and his wife served so faithfully in the church. For, and, and they both still serve so faithfully for so long. But like everyone, they experienced deep pain, deep family loss, significant church family pain. They battled illnesses. But they always continued to be so faithful in everything, especially even the small things. They were always at prayer meetings, always so welcoming to people on sundays always showing hospitality to people always so encouraging in fact the last number of times i saw him um, uh, the the the, the man the last time i saw him he had been battling with cancer and uh, i wouldn't have even known if my mum hadn't told me because his concern every time i saw him was to see how i was getting on to see how we were getting on to to hug me and anytime i asked him how he was doing he quickly turned the conversation to concerns for me and asking about me. They were faithful in the small things and the hard things. And even in the midst of waiting, they still kept working for God. And we see that too in the life of Joseph here. Note the different ways um, God is calling him to remain faithful. First, he continues to seek God as we've seen. He attributes interpretations to God. And God is the one who sent these dreams. He will carry them out. There's a trust there that highlights not only his belief that what he'd been told would come true, but a humbleness to the way that they would come true, a submissiveness to the way that they would come true. He attributes interpretations to him, displaying a faithfulness and reliance on the wisdom of God. His own wisdom wasn't sufficient. His own wisdom wouldn't give him all the answers he wanted to help himself and to help others. He couldn't help these guys in, in this situation. He needed God's wisdom to help him. So in difficult circumstances, we too rely so often on our own wisdom. We forget that God has something to say to us in every situation. We find ourselves in words of wisdom that will comfort us, correct us even, give us direction and hope. We also see jo- Joseph faithful in serving God. He's still serving in the prison. Kay is not just sulking in the back of a cell. He is meeting the needs of others. Verse six, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? He had compassion on them. He was serving them. He isn't bitter or resentful asking, why is nobody asking me if I'm okay? Why is nobody here to serve me and to comfort me? These guys are most likely guilty. Guilty but he has done nothing wrong god is testing him here as to whether he will remain faithful to serve when he least feels like it when he least feels like it god is testing him and proving him and forming him and shaping him to, to learn to be able to serve even when he least feels like it god is teaching him that if he's going to be used by god in the ways that he god is about to use him then he had to learn how to be a servant He must realize that means serving others, showing them compassion, putting others before himself. And that's what he called called us to do as well, because that is what he called Jesus to do. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve you and to serve me. He had compassion in us and he cared for us by giving his life to free us. And it is in that freedom and in that assurance that we are able to serve others, even in the midst of suffering even when we least feel like it, even when it's so hard. Thirdly, Joseph remains faithful in speaking for God. See that Joseph acts as God's spokesperson here when he communicates interpretations that he receives from God. And he doesn't just speak as you've seen in the verses when it's favorable. Okay, the inter- interpretation for the cupbearer is good. He's going to get out in three days and he's restored sore to his former position, okay? Anybody would love to give that sort of news? The baker listens in and thinks, great, that sounds great. I want to hear what my interpretation is. What does mine mean then? Joseph then tells him the interpretation, which is that in three days, he too will be released, but he will face death. Despite how hard it would have been to tell the baker the truth, Joseph had a choice, remain faithful or speak what was favorable. Remain faithful or speak what was favorable. He chose faithfulness. Faithfulness to God for us looks like speaking God's word faithfully even when the outcome doesn't look favorable. Joseph knew the baker, remember that? He knew him, he had compassion on him, he was serving him, he cared for him. And that also involved being truthful with him. Jesus too spoke faithfully and still speaks faithfully through scripture even though what he says is often not favorable. We too are called to speak faithfully to proclaim life in Jesus and warn of death without him. That's what Joseph was called to. That's what Jesus was called to. And that is what we are called to, to speak faithfully, to proclaim life in Jesus and mourn of death without him. And notice too that Joseph is also faithful in his frustration. In light of the positive interpretation you see with the cupbearer, uh, Joseph spots a way out. Okay, verse 14, Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. He sees a way out. He sees an opportunity. He he wants out. He hasn't done anything wrong. Please remember me when you're before Pharaoh. Please plead my case. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Two things here. First, his waiting on God and dependence on him doesn't mean he sits with his eyes closed and his fingers crossed. He uses wisdom, and he seizes, seizes an opportunity to try and get out. Joseph takes what seems like a good opportunity, a moral opportunity to get him out of prison. He, he's innocent, and he shouldn't be there, so he asks the cupbearer to help him get out. And jo- Joseph recognizes that waiting doesn't mean we don't exercise wisdom and get to work. Depending on God doesn't mean that he hasn't given us wisdom and opportunities to work and to do Sometimes working while we wait will be more hands-on, like Joseph pleading his case. Or think back to Genesis where Noah built the ark while he waited for decades for the flood to come. He had to build and build and build, even though he wasn't 100% certain that the flood was going to come, but he built and built and built. It was hands-on waiting. And sometimes working while we wait will mean more holding on. Things are out of our hands. There's not much we can do. So we pray and we read and we gather and we hold on to Jesus even though it's so hard. Sometimes it will be hands-on. Sometimes it will be more hold-on. Second, even though he hasn't called into question God's action in this chapter, and in fact, if you notice throughout the story of Joseph, everything that happens to him, there is nothing there to suggest that he ever questioned God's ways. So, even though he doesn't question God in this chapter or the previous chapters or future chapters, that still doesn't mean he doesn't express his deep frustration and evidence his frailty and his weakness towards others and towards God. Suffering isn't meant to be stoic. We don't have to be stoic when it comes to suffering. Joseph shouldn't have been there. And he rightly calls out the evil that has been committed against him. He had been stolen. He was innocent, yet notice that he doesn't call God's hand into question at all. In fact, notice he doesn't even mention the evil that his brothers committed. He said he was kidnapped. His brothers chucked him in a pit and sold him. He doesn't even call, he doesn't doesn't even mention that it was them, it was their fault. And in all of this, we're seeing that Joseph is beginning through this waiting, through these trials. He's beginning to learn to see all of these things in light of God's purposes. God's purposes in his life, and this will become even more evident later on in Genesis. He's beginning to see here, even in how he responds in his frustration and in his frailty and in his weakness, we're beginning to see how he's beginning to be shaped and formed by God, to see everything that is happening to him in light of God's promises. Jesus, too, expressed his frailty in Gethsemane when he admitted that he was sorrowful, sorrowful and troubled. In fact, he said that his soul was very sorrowful even to death. We too cry out with the psalmist, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long, O Lord? How often have you prayed that? How long? When is this going to end? How long, O Lord? We see those expressions of of suffering and, and, and weakness and frailty expressed to God. Yet even still, Joseph remains faithful. He still believes in God. He still serves God. He still speaks for God. And he is still faithful to God even in his frustration. I don't know about you, but I pray that as, I, as, we, as we see Joseph's faithfulness, that that would be so true of me and of you. That that would be so true of us. That in the depths of the pits of life, that God would help us not to give in to, to bitterness. That he would help our unbelief. That he would help us to keep working even while we wait. So hard Sometimes. We need to keep praying. God, help my unbelief. God, help me to wait. God, help me not to be better. God, help me to keep serving even when it's so hard. God's work of proving me has a purpose. Even when the place I'm in doesn't make sense to me, the promises of God seem like they failed me. And lastly, the presence of God feels like it's left me. Verse 20 to 22, we see Joseph's interpretation come true. So on the third day, verse 20, when, which was Pharaoh's birthday, coincidence, not really, um, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So what Joseph said came true. It came true, it happened. It was what God said. It came true. So you can imagine the anticipation that Joseph has now when three days after he gave that interpretation, the captain of the guard walks down the stairs and he opens the cell of the cupbearer and he opens the cell of the baker and he takes him out. Three days after he gives this interpretation, they're released. You can imagine what he must have thought when this happened. God has sent these guys down here to get me out. This is it. I'm getting out. Look back to to verse 14. Joseph was confident his interpretation would come true before it even happened. He said, when it is well with you. Not if you make it, if you're still alive, see you on the other side. But when, when it is well with you. He had this confidence that the the promises will come true. And then he sees it happening before his eyes. He sees him released from prison. And he waits patiently for the captain of the guard to come and set him free. And he's singing to himself, the cupbearer's out there. He's going to tell Pharaoh, he's going to tell him that I I give these interpretations. And so every time he hears a door open, every time he hears the keys jingle on the captain's uh, side, every time he hears the guards talking, his head turns. He looks up in hope. Then nighttime comes. Oh, maybe, maybe he just hasn't had a chance to talk to Pharaoh yet. You know, it's his birthday celebrations. Uh, he's, he's probably got a lot of people to talk to. Maybe he just hasn't had a chance to chat to him yet. But then a whole day passes. A whole week, whole month. God, what is going on here? Then a whole year. Verse 23 Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The cupbearer has forgotten him, but has God forgotten him? I wonder if you can think back to a time when uh, you've forgotten the loved one's uh, birthday or anniversary. Maybe you've never done that. Or maybe a mother's day or a father's day. I'm sure you've done uh, one of them at some point. Um, quick reminder, by the way, I was in the shops this week, uh, Valentine's cards are out, so 14th of February is in the corner, uh, for anyone who's not um, too bitter and cynical about that sort of thing. Um, but uh, one time when we were younger, um, woke up one Sunday morning and uh, realized that we'd all forgotten my dad's birthday. Uh, we'd actually had a friend staying over, and he was sitting with us, and he felt extremely awkward, and, 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 but we'd forgotten my dad's birthday. Um, and he was, he was pretty hurt by it, as you'd expect. Um, and now the 11th of March is forever ingrained in my memory, although I, my excuse is as a kid, you, tend to for, you sort of tend to rely on your parents for all those important dates and people's birthdays. Uh, you don't really tend to remember those yourself, but um, I remember Chloe's birthday as well. It's the 24th of March. No, 25th, I'm going to <laughs> In some ways, it's funny to look back on that sort of thing, but at the time, it's deeply hurtful, right, isn't it? Forgetting those kind of things often comes across as not caring about someone. Uh, and the relational hurt that can come from it uh, can be really hard. Um, thankfully, my dad's very forgiving. and um, We got past it. We cooked him a breakfast the next day instead. Um, but forgetfulness hurts, doesn't it? Especially when it's relational forgetfulness. I'm sure at some time or another, we've all experienced the pain of not getting a card or not receiving a letter or not hearing from that person we love. And there are times in our walk with God when it can feel like we have been forgotten by him as well. And Joseph was surely in that place. Joseph was surely wrestling with questions like those in Psalm 77. It's up on the screen there. Will the the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up all his compassion? Is he no longer showing me favor? Is he no longer showing me love? Is, Is his promises finished? Or has he forgotten to be gracious? Is he no longer compassionate towards me? Had God forgotten Joseph in prison? If you look back at the end of chapter 39, verses 21 to 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love in the prison and give him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison verse 23 again the lord was with him the lord was with joseph in prison he was with him he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor he was with him even though i felt like god had forgotten him god was still with him and joseph's correct interpretation of those dreams was proof of that He couldn't have done that on his own. He couldn't have done that if God wasn't with him. But because God was with him, the dreams were interpreted exactly as he said of him. His steadfast love hadn't left him. His favor hadn't left him. He was still with Joseph. God hadn't forgotten him. And he hadn't forgotten him just like he hadn't forgot about those who came before him and those who have come after him. God always remembers God remembered Noah in the midst of the flood. God remembered Abraham in his promises to him. God remembered Sarah when she waited for 25 years for the son God promised her. God remembered his people when they were in slavery in Egypt. And ultimately, God remembered Jesus. Even when Jesus felt forsaken, God did not abandon him in the pit of death, but rose him from it to new life. God always remembers. And God remembers us because he remembered Jesus. Jesus, who was the innocent one, who was faithful to God, who resisted temptation who was falsely accused, who came not to be served but to serve, who spoke faithfully for God, who cried out in pain to God, who who entrusted himself to God, who like Joseph learned obedience through suffering. God didn't forget him, God remembered him. Jesus who came so that we who are faithless, who are dead in the pit of our sin, who choose to forget God and ignore him, who are unable to resist temptation, who are so weak and impatient, we who, who, who are so weak and, and so faithless, he came that we might be raised through faith in Jesus from the pit to new life. And for those who trust Jesus, as we wait for the fullness of God's promises to come to us, we have not been left or forgotten. God remembered Joseph. God was with Joseph. God remembered his promises, and he remembered Jesus. The Spirit of Christ is now within us. That's what we were singing earlier on. He is within us to help us, to comfort us, and to enable us to wait and to trust and to remember that the pain we experience now in the pits of life we often find ourselves in are used by God to prepare us for something greater ahead, a greater hope, a greater eternity. God remembers us because he remembers his Son, and in Jesus too we are now sons and daughters of God. He remembers his son, which means he remembers us and he will never forget us. He will never leave us. Just like he was with Joseph, he is with us. But that's hard sometimes to remember. God tells us to remember. And in his kindness, Jesus has given us, the church, a way by which we can be reminded that he is with us. That's what the bread and wine are here in front of us for that, that he hasn't forgotten us. Instead, he came to earth to die for us and to free us and to forgive us. He hosts us at his table and graciously feeds us with his bread and wine in order to remind us in the most tangible way as we taste it and as we touch it that he hasn't forgotten us, that he is with us. In getting us to eat the bread and drink the wine, Jesus hasn't just told us that he is with us he gives us in our frailty and in our weakness and in our forgetfulness something to touch as a reminder of what he has done for us first corinthians 11 uh, verses 24 25 say this and when he had given thanks he he broke it and said this is my body he broke the bread and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the the cup after supper saying this is the cup this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we gather to eat this bread and drink this wine, we are receiving from Jesus as, we are receiving them as reminders that he hasn't forgotten us, that he is with us, that he died for us and that he is present with us now and always. He didn't forget us. God hasn't forgotten us. He sent Jesus to die for us in order to forgive us and to set us eternally free. So as we gather now to take this uh, bread and this wine, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, we don't want you to do anything that is not true of you and would invite you as the bread and wine pass you by to ask yourself, what would it look like for me to put my trust in Jesus and have him lift me from the pit and put purpose into the pain in my life? What would it look like for God to Take me as I trust in Him, to take me from the pit, and then to give purpose and meaning to the pain in my life, so that I can be a protector in those future promises. Um, let me just pray as the church come up to service, um, as they service the meal that Jesus has prepared for us. Let me just pray, uh, Father, we thank you that uh, you're a God. Uh, who doesn't forget us. And Father, so, so often it is so hard to remember that, but you are faithful, your promises come true, and you remember us by sending your Son to save us. You didn't forget us, but you sent him to die for us, to forgive us, to free us, so that we would be freed from the ultimate pit of sin and death, that we would be given the security of eternal life. And even as we experience pain in this life now, even as we still experience uh, the pits in life, as we make our way to be with you one day, Father, we pray that you would remind us and have your hand upon us and care for us and comfort us and strengthen us in our weakness as we seek to remain faithful to you, as we seek to wait on you. And would you help us to always remember you that you are with us. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.